Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. What's up? I'm Justin Burt, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu and our outstanding producer, Sydney Ingle. Say hi, Sydney. Hi, happy to be here. We are so excited to have you back for your second producer, uh, second production and on air uh, this episode. We we loved having you. Well, welcome back. Thanks. Uh, we had a great guest tonight, Dr. John Gayantis, who is also a repeat guest. He is here to discuss headaches in pediatric patients, one of our favorite neurologists. But before we go into some of the details and contents of the show, hey, Chris, tell us about the podcast. Sure. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Gay Tannis. Dr. Gay Tannis, a returning guest to the Cribsiders, is the Director of Child Neurology at Tufts Medical Center slash Floating Hospital for Children. He has a particular clinical interest in epilepsy and is currently on the board of the Epilepsy Foundation of New England. He teaches us here about the heterogeneity of headaches and treatments, why it may be okay to prescribe OCPs even if patients have migraines with aura, and how to use Bath and Body Works to diagnose migraines. Knowing those great things, our listeners will be headaching to hear this episode. Oh, no. no? Yeah. Was it good? All right. <laughs> headaching to hear. I love it. Dr. Gaitanis, excited to have you back for the second time on the Cribsiders. I feel like we're old friends now. It's uh, You're part of the family. Uh, uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. We are very excited to have you back. We, we've had permission to call you John in the past, so I'm going to roll with that and assume we're still on the first name basis. For those people that didn't get to hear the epilepsy episode that you helped us guide us through seizures, um, has over 15,000 downloads. A lot of people have heard it. But for those who haven't or who have might have forgotten since then, can you give us a little bit of description about yourself and who you are and maybe something a little bit of outside of medicine? Sure, absolutely. So I'm John Gaitanis. I'm a pediatric neurologist currently at Tufts Medical Center. I'm also a father of three. And, you know, I'd, I'd say I, I think a lot of people love to talk about their hobbies and other things they're into. But the truth is, between medicine and fatherhood, that's probably enough. That would cover the main event as well as the hobbies and the extracurriculars. I frankly love that. I hate the question of what are your hobbies because it just makes me feel very incompetent as a human <laughs> that I. Um, my hobbies are catching up on work and emails, although I am trying to find some new things to to see if that makes me a complete person. But for now, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with what I do. Uh, <laughs> what new things are you working on, Justin? <laughs> I've started weightlifting, actually. That is my new Ooh, th- my new ho- nice. hobby is, is uh, lifting heavy things wow. and then putting it back down. Yeah, I think I think the prison job is what got me into that. So. <laughs> you um, can work out with the other guys. Yeah. Sydney, do you want to do our next question? Yeah, sure. I'm always looking for something good to read. John, do you have a book you've read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? I'm currently reading Sapiens, which is really covers the full spectrum of humanity on this earth. So it's it's a great read. But I think, you know, even as you think about how that relates to, say, medicine, it doesn't specifically touch on medicine. But 
I like to think of the study of medicine as really the ultimate study of humanities. And so I know we always kind of categorize medicine as something under science or biology, but in truth, we are experts within the humanities space. So I think reading something a little outside the science is always a great idea. Yeah, I have that on the bookshelf, my, my wife's book. I have to pick that up now. It's worth the time. <laughs> my, my question today will be, what is the best advice you've received as a learner? You know, one of the things I have, I had an uncle who used to love to say that there are no mistakes in life, just learning opportunities. And that phrase sticks with me all the time at work. I, I think about that constantly, that every moment is a learning opportunity. I do like to think if I can learn one small fact from each patient, and it doesn't have to be medical, then over the course of my life, I'll be filled with so many new things, right? So every single encounter, we try to learn from each one. That's like so that. beautiful. Yeah, I love that. I've had a lot of, uh, I've made a lot of learning opportunities in the past. And I, uh, I think that's true. I had a uh, attending who talked about trying to suck the marrow out of every case and learn something from every case. I think yours is a little more uh, uh, articulate and, and nuanced, but uh, that, that has always stuck with me as well. So I, I love that. Was that a hematologist? Uh, it wasn't. It's, uh, <laughs> it's Dr. Reza Manesh, actually. I remember he's an internist, so. Uh, maybe he'll go on to, to hematology and start doing bone biopsies. Um, all right, let's dive into some uh, neurology content. Let's get started. Sydney, let's get get us started. Lift us off. All right. So our case today from Cashlack Children's, we have Maggie Rain is an 11-year-old established patient at Cashlack Children's. She is brought to the clinic today by her caregiver to address her frequent headaches. Her caregiver explains that Maggie has been complaining about headaches at least three times a week for the last three months, usually right when she gets home from school. She's not really able to specify a specific location for the headaches and says sometimes it feels like squeezing and other times like something is hitting her head. When she has a headache, she usually refuses to do her homework and instead asks if she can go lie down in her room. They last for about four hours, and sometimes she feels nauseous during them. Her caregiver has a history of migraines and wonders if this is something that they should be concerned about. So to start us off, can you talk to us a little bit about your approach to assessments of headaches? Uh, do you think about it as stress? Are you thinking migraine? Are you thinking brain tumor? So I'll say for every headache, and it's not unlike everything else in medicine, 90% of it is all in the history. Most of the patients that come to us have really no findings on their physical exam. So everything we're getting in terms of useful information is coming primarily from their history. So here, I mean, she has quite a few details. I can get into those a little bit more, but I would say off the bat, like the first thing you do think of for every patient is, is you want to sort of categorize what's the most pressing, dangerous thing that this can be versus what's the most common or likely thing this can be. So your differential has to cover both because you don't want to miss that rare case of moya moya or that rare brain tumor that may present to your office. And uh, keep in mind too, with head when it comes to headaches like everything else in medicine, again, the follow-up is often the most important visit too. So we have to always remember that they need really good ability to reach you again if the history should change. And we, we have to make sure we do the follow-up. Otherwise, Otherwise, we'll be right 100% of the time. And when taking that history, what are some of the ways that you start by taking a history? We can either pretend, you know, that that I'm Maggie Rain, or are there? Are you specifically thinking red flags first? Are you specifically thinking of other stressors first? What's a, what's an expert like you? How, what's your approach to, to gathering that history? So I think, well, the first part is you don't have to be an expert really in headache per se. So it's always remember, important to just go back to the basics. So let's say, for example, you're an emergency room physician, general pediatrician, 
everybody knows how to do a pain history. So whether it's abdominal pain, knee pain, or headache, you know, we, we all know sort of the questions to ask. So it starts with the location, typically for me. Then I like to know the characteristics of the pain, have the patient like sort of explain it in their own words as best they can. I try not to lead them too much on that point. I like to know when it began, um, how if it's episodic, how long does it last for typically? Is it something that develops very suddenly at once or, or does it kind of gradually build and then gradually decline? And then you like to know, if, are there any associated factors with your pain? So in the case of headache, we ask questions about nausea, vomiting, do you wake from sleep? Do you have photophobia, phonophobia, all, all those kinds of things. And can you maybe break down a little bit of what some of those findings would suggest if, if it's waking you from sleep or if it's nausea or if it's if they describe it as sharp versus a pressure? What are some of the things that those are they're triggering it for you? Yeah. So in neurology, we like to every history we take, we like to actually use that to localize first and then using the localization will generate a differential. So when we're asking about headaches, the location of the headache is kind of where I start because I am trying to localize the source of the pain. So if we think about the, the pain-sensitive structures in the head, you have skin, bone, meninges, and blood vessels. Those are the primary pain-sensitive structures. So when a patient says that the pain is, say, unilateral versus bilateral, I'm already starting to think, okay, where exactly is this going to localize to and how? Now, interestingly, a lot of the concerning headaches are sometimes bilateral, or the patient will report them sort of over the vertex, over the top of their head. And the reason is that if you think of, uh, say, the worst case scenario, like a brain tumor where there's an increase in intracranial pressure, then there's often stretch upon the meninges, and that's the primary source of pain. And that stretch will be something that's experienced in a more of a bilateral fashion yielding a bilateral headache or a headache that's uh, reported more over the central region in the top of the head, where something unilateral uh, is often more trigeminal in nature. And the vast majority of those situations are going to actually be migraine, particularly in kids. And so the location helps me. But then also I look at the other associated features because, and we'll get a little more into this later, but migraine really is a is a sensitivity syndrome. It's a, it's a sensory phenomenon, not truly headache. So in the case of migraine, you don't have headache alone. You have photophobia, phonophobia. Um, you have sometimes a sense of vertigo, motion sickness. Some patients are actually also sensitive to smell or to taste. And so those are not usually prominent features, but they will mention it to you. I'll sometimes ask a patient if they can tolerate going into Bath and Body Works. Um, <laughs> and I, and I kind of use that as a migraineer test because the patients who have migraines often say that the smell is overwhelming, but we don't usually focus on smell as a primary modality, but it's just a good way to recognize that this is somebody who has a hypersensitive sensory phenomenon. Now for some of our kids who are younger, may have more difficulty describing how they're feeling, or even some of our, our kids who are maybe more, more, more or less nonverbal, how, how do you approach those patients differently? And what are some tricks that you have found in your practice that helps maybe better elicit or figure out what that history is? So that, that's really the essence of pediatrics, isn't it? Like the, you know, patients may be non-speaking, for example, but they're communicating. So all patients communicate, they just do it in different ways. So in a younger patient, they will still give you the history you need because you still know the time course. You may not really know the characteristic of the pain. They may not be able to say it's throbbing versus pressure, but 
you'll you'll have a sense of the time course. You have a sense of the severity. So I'll often ask the parents, do, does the child play through their headache? Do they do other activities? You want to know, do they just go to, do they want to just go to the room and sleep and not be bothered? Are they, whether they're sensitive to light or sound, you usually can get some measure of that, or the parents have some sense of that based on whether they want the door closed, the lights off. Of course, vomiting too is something that they'll know. And you can get a, even if they can't describe nausea, the parents will know if the child is, is struggling to eat or just loses their appetite completely at that time. So you still get a lot of history pertinent to help differentiate the type of headache, even in a younger child. And when we're taking a history, are there specific things that are red flag symptoms? I feel like that's always a big part of headache history. What are the red flags that we should be looking for, listening to that makes us think this is something that needs more urgent workup and not a tincture of time, but fast evaluation? Yeah. So the dangerous, you know, the red flags really are, it's really a question of what are the dangerous entities that we don't want to miss? So meningitis and brain tumors. And a bleed, too. I suppose that would be important, too. So, you know, something like a bleed in kids often would be post-traumatic, but there can be that rare case of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And that is something where it often would be extremely severe and would come out of the blue without a prior history of headache. That's a key distinction. There can be people who have a history of migraine who have developed a subarachnoid hemorrhage, but many times when something unexpected like that happens, this is a child who never had prior history of headache. It's kind of similar for brain tumor, except the difference there is that it, unlike the uh, the severe acuity of a subarachnoid hemorrhage, in the case of brain tumor, it often gradually develops. But one thing here that makes it a little bit easier to distinguish from something episodic like migraine is if a child has a brain tumor or if a child has, say, chronic meningitis from like neuroborreliosis, for example, they're not going to get these periods of quiescence. You're not going to have a week of uh, you know, being symptom free, you're actually your symptoms are going to be fairly continuous and steady through that time. You might have fluctuation over the course of the day, but it's not going to completely resolve. You're not going to just have neuro Lyme and feel great for a week and then feel lousy, or or brain tumor and feel great for a week and then feel lousy. So the persistence of those symptoms is a really important factor. So is this new? That worries me. Is it persistent? That worries me. And then, of course, you know, I think the things that we're taught first are it doesn't wake you from sleep and doesn't make you vomit. Those are things we're taught first because those are both features of increased intracranial pressure. So the sleep is really because in, in sleep, we tend to hypoventilate a little bit more. So with that, there's increased relative increased blood flow to the brain and vasodilation that leads to that increased blood flow. And so with that increased volume of blood, there's that subtle increase of volume will really be problematic if somebody has increased intracranial pressure, plus gravity too, you're, you're lying recumbent as well. So those two factors together sort of combine to create this issue where increased intracranial pressure is more often perceived late into the evening, early morning hours, somebody waking with vomiting and severe headache then. So the positional nature is, you know, is, is part of that equation. And then anytime, anytime somebody has any neurological symptoms. So obviously, if there's an exam abnormality, that's a concern. But even if you have a normal exam, if somebody had uh, transient neurological symptoms, they couldn't speak, they couldn't move one side of their body, you know, a- anything, uh, visual loss, those those would also prompt increased concern. So you sort of discussed a couple of red flags, why they're red flags in terms of like maybe the pathophysiology and reasons for some things like whether it's, you know, whether it's a brain bleed, whether it's meningitis. So 
when we're talking about maybe the more common things that we're going to see, can you sort of explain sort of like the, the large buckets, like sort of whether it's stress, stress, tension, headache, whether it's a, a migraine, and, and maybe also talk about, you know, what, what are, do we know what the pathophysiology is for each of these buckets? Yeah, what's a headache? I love it. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an important thing. So, um, you know, to really think of when you kind of get to the primary headache stage, because all the things we talked about red flags, we're talking about entities where there's some other feature that really is apart from the headache. And that's actually what you're going to focus on most, mostly. If a child comes to me with neck stiffness and a fever of 104, I don't think I'm going to go through the migraine questionnaire, right? Or if, or if a child uh, was unresponsive and, and, and just had a serious ski injury or something without a helmet, I might focus on something other than the migraine history, right? But once you've gotten past that point and, and you're really thinking, okay, this, this is a kid who's actually sitting upright on the exam table, alert, talking to you, they look pretty comfortable, I, I feel calm then, it's probably not something so serious then you really want to get at what, you know, this might be a primary headache type and what are the, what's the basis of that? And like everything else, it does boil down to anatomy. Um, you know, as I mentioned, there are, the, the unilateral headache often is trigeminal, but a lot of, when you read about migraine in particular, a lot of what's implicated there is the trigeminal nerve and, and its pathway. And so you have, I think what's important to recognize is we do have both peripheral as well as central mechanisms that are at play. And there is even uh, what we call central sensitization, which if somebody experiences headache over time, there might be central aspects that actually can perpetuate that headache cycle more so. But the trigeminal nerve is really heavily implicated in terms of the pathophysiology of migraine. More specifically than that, like it gets into, there are a lot of different proximal issues in the pathway that relate to the chemistry involved. But so some of the substances that are really important are things like calcitonin related peptide, substance P. Um, is really important as well. Uh, glutamate plays a role and serotonin play a role. Those are all really uh, key factors. And each of those do relate to how that trigeminal nerve is functioning and relate also to how the central mechanisms are going to come into play. For a clinician like myself, that's pro it gets more, you know, as you read about the, path the specific pathophysiology, it gets a little more detailed than I probably need to know in clinical practice. But in truth, a lot of the research on these mechanisms have actually led to specific treatment avenues. So we'll get to that as we get to treatment, but things like CGRP, calcitonin-related peptide inhibitors, or the role of serotonin as it relates to tryptans, like each one of these actually leads to a treatment avenue that we can pursue. I'm really excited to talk about some of the, the treatments too of just how medicines affect headache pain. Um, before we get too much into uh, diving into treatment when we still have Maggie in front of us, when we are going through some of these red flag symptoms, we're making sure we're, or we're starting to go down the migraine questions. What about some of the other data points that we need to collect first before we jump to the assessment and plan part of the note? Can you walk us through your physical exam findings or what you're looking for uh, in a patient who is presenting with a headache or presumed migraine? Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I always start with how that kid looks when you just enter the room. So there are days where I'll go to an exam room, open the door and all the lights are closed. The child's actually lying on the table. And I know right then this kid is in a bad space right now. Like this, this kid's got an ongoing active headache and this is probably pretty severe. And then, and I actually do like to ask the patient too, would you, do you prefer the lights to be off if they look uncomfortable? 
it's it's not a bad thing to uh, remember to ask, especially in the emergency room setting. But the the appearance of that child is probably the most important thing. That like everything we get from the exam, most of it we're getting through observation. So if the child's happy, you know, presenting their symptoms very clearly, looks very comfortable. At least I know at the present that they don't have a headache, and this is more likely episodic, and I'm actually a little less worried. And then from there, you really get into, just like every other neurological exam, you're going to get into the same approach that you use for everyone, which would be mental status, cranial nerves, motor, sensory, and then coordination. You're going to go through that same approach, but you are going to put extra emphasis on the eye exam. You're going to, you're going to want to look for papilledema on each kid. And one of the things I, th- I think that's key with that, with the fundoscopic exam, is that you can't simply do a fundoscopic exam, uh, say, you know, once, I don't know, twice a year. It's not going to cut it. It's the kind of thing that you just have to be in the habit of doing for every patient. So you get really good at it. So you kind of know what the low-grade papilledema looks like. And, you know, and therefore, when you really do see it, you have you have a little greater confidence and you don't have to refer everybody out to ophthalmology. The retinal exam, I feel like, is always a headache for a lot of pediatric pediatricians and, and internists too. Do you do you ever in your office do dilated eye exams? Because I will say, I was always amazed at ophthalmology and how they were able to get these beautiful images or diagnose. And then when I first did my first dilated eye exam, it felt like it felt like it was cheating because it's it's such a great view. Do you have any tips of looking at how uh, how to look at an eye exam other than practice? Are there other tips? Do you ever do dilated eye exams? Any tips for people trying to learn this? So I, I never do dilated eye exam, but I had the same impression that you do where I, I kind of feel like it's it's cheating. So it's I feel the same way about radiologists because, you know, I try to look at something on my little laptop screen and then I go to their office and they have that beautiful yeah. huge screen with the great contrast ratio. And you know, so then you realize the tools really do matter, right? And the ophthalmologists have the right tools. And especially for kids, they, you know, it, it matters quite a bit uh, in a child who may not be fully cooperative. But I, I, you know, I use, I don't use a panoptic. I use a traditional ophthalmoscope. I've grown up with that, but I also find to be, I find it to be more useful because you can get actually a wider field of view. I know a lot of people feel much more comfortable with the panoptic. I, I think, I think the key though is to just do them all the time. You know, I, I just made a habit of doing like looking at the fundi in every patient, even when they're well. And in doing so, you just through repetition, you just get better and better at it. Um, I, I do notice when I when I'm teaching residents, for example, one of the things I notice that's really clear is a lot of residents just aren't getting close enough to the patient. You really do have to get close when, when you're doing traditional thermoscopy. They're, they might forget also to turn the light off in the room. And those those two things alone are going to be a big help. Uh, and of course, the level of maturity of the patient, they have to cooperate somewhat. So you have to give them somewhat of a target to go for. If a child has ADHD, if they're, if they're nervous or scared, or if they're just too young, they're, they're not gonna, it's going to be a little bit harder for them. In looking at uh, a patient after we've done this history, we've done this exam, Chris and I love to do imaging. We love looking at photos. We love, we love visual images. For someone with a headache where even if they only have a headache after drinking red wine, which they shouldn't be doing because they're 12. Um, but even if they have a history that's a you know a clear trigger where we're not worried about a brain tumor, that's got to be you know some of the first thoughts that a parent has and even a provider, especially if it's a new onset headache. When are you pulling the trigger for imaging and what modalities are you using? So there, there actually have been studies that have looked at this question about when do you need to image in pediatric headache? And one of the really important things to recognize from those studies is that the, the overwhelming conclusion is that when you have a normal neurological examination, 
that the rate of finding an abnormality within the brain is exceedingly low, pretty much 0%. The things you do find, though, and so depending on the study, you look at the rate of finding an abnormality might still be as high as 10%, but it's not going to be within the brain. It's usually within the sinuses. Most of the time, you're going to see evidence for sinusitis. You might find evidence for a Chiari malformation, too. That's, now, Chiari typically is going to be more of a suboccipital headache, so it's going to be different in presentation. But those are the kinds of things that you often would see in a patient who has a normal exam who you're imaging. It's, it's not really going to breed the brain itself in most of those situations. And do those Chiari malformations, are they sometimes clinically significant? I feel like a lot of times that's almost like an incidental finding, but maybe I should be giving them more credence than I, I do. You have to be careful with Chiaris. They, um, it's, so they're not uncommon. Uh, and I think the question there is like, can we truly attribute the patient's symptoms to that finding? So part of it depends on the severity of the Chiari, because most of them, technically, if, you're, if you have tonsillar ectopy more than five millimeters, then that's a Chiari, but that doesn't necessarily, that's so, so small that it, for most patients that would not affect at all CSF flow or cause headache. Uh, and so the way I know it's significant first is if you see evidence for a cervical cord syrinx, then you probably have a significant Chiari because you're, then you have evidence that you're obstructing flow coming up the central canal. So that, that to me would be more significant. Or again, if you have a true like suboccipital headache, that would, you know, the location really does matter here. So if it's, if it's more of a chronic headache, suboccipital, then I do worry more about a Chiari. Or if you have uh, sensory symptoms, particularly shoulders, hands, because you're, you're going to see more of the cervical type symptoms, um, that, that would make me worry about it as well. That's a hard, that's a hard uh, issue though to face clinically, I have to say. So when, when it comes to the type of imaging then, so what I've been traditionally taught is like, you know, if it's traumatic or something like that, I'm going to go with a non-contrasted head CT looking for, for like a brain bleed. But then otherwise, when I'm looking at, you know, a patient with you know, headaches, I'm really worried about something structural. I'm going to go with MRI. And I've also heard that maybe if you do the MRI, that contrast really doesn't help you that much more. Is this true or not? For most headache, you don't need contrast. The only time you might consider it is if you felt like somebody has meningitis and you want to sort of demonstrate that with contrast. But I would say if you think somebody has meningitis, you should really do a spinal tap. That's the, the contrast is MRI is not the way to diagnose it. But mo yeah, so vast majority of time, you really don't need contrast. And the other thing about MRI is the likelihood of doing MRI, you have to modify the decision to do MRI based on whether the patient needs sedation. So that's, that's to me, is a really key um, branch point here because when you're putting a child through sedation, you really have to think about it a little bit more. I think in an 18-year-old who is really cooperative, you know, there's not much downside to it except the time and cost. So I'm more likely to, to use it in patients who can cooperate. Um, that to me, that does make a difference. And so in general, just a differential diagnosis and going back to our patient, um, Maggie Rain, when she's having the, the squeezing headache that's lasting four hours, sometimes associated with nausea, uh, having trouble doing work and wants to go home from school. What's our differential here? What are the things that you're thinking of? And are there ways to differentiate between some of the primary headaches of tension headache versus migraine versus um, psychosomatic head pain? Yeah, so she's given us a few things that would suggest this to be migraine. But first, it really sounds episodic. So she's not mentioning, she's mentioning three days a week, but she's not mentioning 
a continuous daily headache that begins the moment she wakes. So it sounds episodic from that. She's not really giving a clear location, but she does say sometimes it feels like it's hitting her head, which to me sounds throbbing in quality. Um, and it would be helpful if she's able to tell us further that it's unilateral. That would uh, be more supportive for migraine. And then the fact that she wants to lie down in a room, that too has migraine quality. Whenever I hear that the child wants to sleep during a headache, you know, I think about migraine more. The time course fits for migraine too. Four hours would be, you know, migraines usually are in the range of hours, half an hour to sometimes several hours, but they can't even be longer than that. Those all things. And then she has nausea as well. So she she's hitting on a lot of features that really would be more suggestive for migraine than for other headache types. And one, I think, anecdote that a lot of pediatricians that I have found at least is in so many cases of pediatric head pain, less so with the migraine symptoms, but it often has to do with vision. Um, not, you know, this is how a patient who needs glasses is diagnosed. They're saying they have headaches. And then after a while, you kind of realize, oh, they have 20 you know, 200 vision. This is the cause of the headaches. Do you have a sense of, is this something we should be on the top of our differential referring to optometry before neurology? Or how do you kind of uh, factor that in to another common presentation of pediatric head pain? So I, I'd say that both the visual question as well as the sinus question and or allergy question, those are two things that are very highly misattributed as potential causes for headache. I think for most kids, if there are no visual symptoms, I think most of the time uh, waiting for an ophthalmology assessment is simply delaying care in, in most situations. Plus, migraine has so many very specific features within the history that I don't think you could really mistake that for eye strain. So as we talk about the differential diagnosis in this case, I'm curious if you differentiate between migraine and tension headaches, and also just in general, if you can talk a little bit more about the other headache subtypes and provide some definitions, that would be really helpful. Sure. Yeah, the, you know, when we think about primary headache subtypes, the three most common are migraine, tension type, and then cluster headaches. We don't see cluster very often in kids, but the time course is a key distinction there. So cluster is unilateral, extremely severe. One key difference in cluster versus migraine, cluster is more like a kidney stone. The patient is, is actually writhing in the office. They're, they're pacing. They're not lying down in bed quietly. It's, it's, that's why I say it's like a kidney stone. They look like a patient who has a kidney stone. They're, they don't know how to get comfortable. They can't get comfortable. So it's extremely severe, but shorter in duration typically. And it clusters with multiple episodes over a short time span. And then cluster responds to oxygen, which is really interesting. So if they're in the emergency room, that's a really quick thing you could try. And I do recommend doing that for somebody who's pacing with their headache. Tension is uh, also very different than migraine. Tension is more commonly a bilateral headache. Uh, this patient had one point in her history that kind of raised a question of tension, was it, which is that it usually develops when she comes home from school. So tension is something that you do typically see later in the day. Um, sometimes it is related to posture, to like maintaining a, say, seated posture, things like neck strain over the course of the day or to certain physical activities. Um, but it's usually more bilateral and it doesn't have all the sensory phenomenon that you see with migraine. So you're not going to get as much like the sensitivity to light, to sound, the nausea, vomiting, motion sickness that you get with migraine. Whereas migraine is, again, it's a scent. I mean, think, if you think of it not as a headache type, but as a sensory phenomenon, then it, that really helps distinguish it. So 
one of the sensory phenomena you get with migraine happens to be an extreme, such an extreme sensitivity that you're literally feeling every heartbeat. The meninges move ever so slightly. Every time you have a, you know, every, with every systole, you get like that little bit of movement with each heartbeat. And that's the pain that you're feeling. But at the same time, you have the sensitivity to light, to sound, to motion, that sense of nausea and vomiting. And so those are the key distinguishing features of migraine. And maybe as a quick follow-up to that, two two quick questions. I, as a migranor myself, have the scintillating scotomas or the blurred vision. Is is that something common? And then the other is is auras. I feel like migraines with auras, without auras is something um, commonly. Are these slam dunk for migraines? And, and what is an aura? And can you talk a little bit about those components? Yeah. So aura helps. It, it's, it's supportive in the migraine diagnosis. The most common aura is visual aura, which for many people will be a, if you get a story of a scintillating, like leading edge is some a term we use, but um, sometimes described by patients as sort of like flashing or spots at the lead point of that visual scotoma. And then centrally to that, they will describe like blurriness or black vision. And then that scintillation and that, that black spot will slowly grow over time. So it's unlike, say, a seizure. A seizure is something that would spread over seconds. A visual scotoma will spread and a migraine will spread over minutes, typically. And the phenomenon that underlies that, that we believe, is, is a phenomenon called spreading depression. And it's um, it's like a cortical depolarization that's occurring, and it usually occurs at a very set rate of three millimeters per minute, which translates to a very slow progression of that aura. In the case of a hemiplegic migraine, this is less common, and so this is kind of a rare occurrence. But there are some patients who have a CACNA1A gene mutation who are predisposed to hemiplegic migraine. And that usually does begin with a visual scotoma, but then it progresses to sensory phenomenon on one side and then motor. And it can also involve speech if it's typically left-sided. And so that is something that would progress usually over a time span of like 20 or 30 minutes because it takes that long for it to spread along the cortex to cause those symptoms. Very few patients have hemiplegic symptoms, but the visual scotoma is actually fairly common occurrence. Like that's the most common visual aura people will experience. Some might have also a sense of nausea, motion sickness as well as, as, a, as a sensation that they experienced before the onset of headache. And maybe as a quick follow-up of that to the migraine with aura being a contraindication for oral contraceptives, is there a clear pathophysiology connection there? Or is it just something that if you happen to have auras, you happen to have more blood clots on OCPs? So that's heavily debated. So ACOG criteria in some ways hinder what you want to do sometimes as a neurologist. Um, so the ACOG, the American College, <laughs> yeah, so they shouldn't, they shouldn't weigh in on migraine. <laughs> like stick, stick to your lane. You yeah, know? Stay in your lane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I went into neurology simply so I don't have to talk about hormones and anything to do with gynecology and they should do the same with neurology anyway so the uh no so basically the acog criteria do state that patients with migraine and aura should avoid oral contraceptives and that was based on uh the the, the concern that patients with migraine and aura have an increased incidence of stroke and if you put them on exogenous estrogen that you're elevating the risk of stroke potentially however a lot of the data that suggests that or noracontraceptive will increase your risk of stroke, really comes from a time when much higher doses of estrogen were being used. 
And the data are really not so clear that the low dose estrogen that we're that we use presently really elevates risk of stroke so significantly. And then complicating it further, there are a lot of women who have catamenial migraine, and meaning migraine related to their menstrual cycle, who can actually experience a, a pretty significant improvement in migraine by helping regulate their cycle using oral contraceptive to do that. And so you're. For, for many patients, you're actually going to imp help improve their migraine frequency using hormonal therapy this way. And so I, I, I think many neurologists don't really buy into the idea that we're really elevating stroke risk uh, substantially with migraine with aura. I think the only population where I'm really hesitant there is somebody, somebody with hemiplegic migraine. Migraine with visual aura, I don't worry so much about, but hemiplegic migraine, I think in that situation, I do recommend avoiding oral contraceptive, even though the evidence there is very weak. Um, and similarly, we don't recommend triptan use in patients with hemiplegic migraine for the same concern of stroke. The risk is extremely small, but we still are hesitant in, in that situation. So talking a little bit about, um, you know, we're talking about some primary uh, primary headaches. Yeah, and I think there's something that's a little, I don't know if everyone believes in this, but is are there mixed headaches? So I always feel like when we when we talk about triggers, you know, uh, whether it's menses or can you know, I always feel that, you know, sometimes tension headaches might trigger someone to have migraines. So can someone have like a mixed presentation of their headache or even the other way around? Like my migraine so bad that I'm stressing about it and I give myself also tension. And does that make the picture really muddied? Yeah. So it depends on if you're a lumper or splitter in this case, right? But there are some who believe that when you look at cluster versus migraine versus tension type headache, that these are just different expressions of the same thing. They're all within the same Venn diagram uh, of subset of, of headache types and that they're all interrelated. And so, there is some evidence for that in the sense that many people have two headache types. Many people would have tension and migraine or cluster and migraine type. Or within a given family, you might have an individual, a sibling who has cluster and then the other has migraine. So that would kind of suggest maybe they are interrelated. But then you also can reasonably be a, a splitter on this too, because if you look at even a single entity like migraine, this is a heterogeneous population of patients. So there, for example, patients with mitochondrial disorders would have migraine. Some patients with potassium channelopathies or calcium channelopathies might have migraine. Um, so, you know, sometimes a glutamate uh, uh, issue of glutamate receptor. So you have you have a wide spectrum of possible causes of migraine. So it's a heterogeneous population, even within that more narrow subset of headache type. So I think I think you can argue to lump or split <laughs> in both cases. And I, I am of the belief that there is some interrelationship between, say, tension and cluster and migraine. And I think a lot of people who actually will say that they have tension headache, many of them actually do have migraine when you probe a little deeper in their history. So kind of you were talking about some of these etiologies that may be behind headaches. I do want to ask before we move on from workup, if there are any labs that you routinely order in patients that are presenting with headaches. Um, I know that I feel like we order CBCs and BMPs on all sorts of patients for all sorts of reasons. And I'm curious if there's any common yield there. So, uh, you know, I think the thing to always keep in mind with the headache assessment is it's really clinical diagnosis based heavily on the history. So whenever I order any study, whether it be imaging or lab, I'm, I'm doing it more so to assess whether there's some associated condition that I'm perhaps overlooking or whether there's a larger kind of systemic issue um, that we have to explore. So, so for, you know, for example, Lyme disease, if a patient has other features, if they're chronically, they've been chronically fatigued for the last few weeks, they've, they have unexplained fever, you know, there may be joint pain. 
I have to think, could lupus be an issue? Could Lyme be an issue? I mean, there's certain things like that that I have to explore both. So rheumatologic and infectious things do come up because with inflammation comes pain. And that's something that, you know, always, always prompts uh, some concern when you have some features of inflammation. So I'm going to, in that case, I will check CBC, SED rate, perhaps Lyme. It's less likely that I'm going to pursue lupus unless I have a more specific reason to, uh, rash or urinary symptoms or other things. But, you know, it's very similar too with the imaging question. I mean, we're, we're doing that more so to evaluate other possible causes like a, like a Chiari, like hydrocephalus, like, but we're, we're thinking about, it's very uncommon that that's that the direct cause of headache is actually going to be found on any of these labs. And none of these labs will actually help you diagnose the specific headache syndrome. So it's, it's always important to remember the headache itself is really clinical diagnosis. I'm excited into treatment, but maybe one final question before, and that's the racial disparity, something we always try to think about and talk about on the show. Is there any evidence for racial disparities in diagnosis of uh, headaches or other places where you've seen this as an issue? So, yeah, I, I think this is a, always an important issue to think of with every area of medicine. And migraines and headaches are extremely common. And unfortunately, racial disparities in diagnosis and treatment are very common. And so it's not that surprising to learn that if you look at black or indigenous people of color as a group, that the diagnosis of migraine, for example, is far lower for white patients. If you overall, for example, for diagnosis, about 40, less than 50% of patients who are black are actually diagnosed with migraine who have migraine. For Latino patients, it's in the range of about 50%, whereas for white patients, it's 70% or higher are actually correctly diagnosed with migraines. So the diagnosis is, is lower in both black and Hispanic patients. Also, the treatments are, the rate of treatment is lower as well. So less than the, the rate of, of treatment for, for black patients when compared to white patients is only about 40% of black patients are actually given prescription medications for their acute migraines compared to about 37% of white patients. It's very hard to justify those differences on any biological basis. I, I think there really is no way that I can reconcile that through biology. I think it really, to me, strongly suggests that this is based on all the factors that really result in uh, systemic racism in medicine, sadly. Uh, absolutely. And I appreciate the the insights. And, you know, unfortunately, as we talked about before the show, it's true in a lot of different uh, components of, of medicine and pediatrics. I'd love to dive into to treatment of, of someone, especially with a migraine, and maybe we'll uh, transition our patient into the Cashlat Children's uh, Emergency Department, because I feel like there is some great uh, opportunities for the full spectrum of headache treatment. And so if a patient comes in with a diagnosed migraine with some of these photophobia, some aura, some nausea, or has a known history and family history of migraine headaches, is there a clear pathway that you often offer as acetaminophen, NSAIDs, and then do you ever get up to um, tryptins, valproic acid? Can you kind of talk about the spectrum of treatments and if there's clear evidence how those might work? Sure. Yeah. So for acute therapy, I think if you look at therapy, let's just subdivide them. Like, so there, we think about both acute and preventative therapies. But when we're looking just at acute therapies and how can we break the headache at the moment, the most common recommended treatment is ibuprofen for kids. It's the evidence is quite good that it works. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends it as a first trial. 
Um, and so I think that's always a good place to start. But you also want to do very simple things too, like uh, let the child rest, turn the lights out, give them, make sure they're hydrated. Uh, so in the acute setting, those things are also very important. The other type of treatment that is both uh, acknowledged as effective by the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, but also which I feel within my own practice is very effective, are the tryptan agents for acute therapy. So those by tryptan, those are the medications that end with tryptan. <laughs> these are all medications that work through serotonin mechanisms, but these would be like sumatriptan, zolmatriptan, rizotriptan. And I believe rizotriptan has the lowest age for the FDA approval, which is age six and over. And sumatriptan, I believe, is 12 and over. And I do, I often have to look that up because I do like to counsel families on the age of FDA approval so that I'm, you know, guiding them as to whether this is uh, appropriate for their child based on age. Younger than that, though, I'll, I'll really stick more to ibuprofen, which the evidence for ibuprofen is a little bit better than it is for acetaminophen, but both both have evidence that they work acutely. Now, some of the adult patients I've taken care of, some of, I've used some, and I've seen used some other abortive therapies, and I wonder if you could uh, talk about how, whether we see this in kids or not, so that use of muscle relaxants uh, like chlorazoxazone or Flexeril, you know, I, obviously, you know, with kids, you're going to use a lot of muscle relaxants, but also use of steroids or even vulpric acid. Do we see these as abortants for some of our kids who really have difficult migraines that are difficult to break? In in the emergency room setting, we will often use a, a more aggressive approach because they're in the emergency room. The headache is quite severe to have landed them there. And so many times that we can still start with an NSAID. So, you know, may, perhaps in the emergency room, you might choose Toradol versus ibuprofen, but, you, you know, in part you're doing that because you're in the emergency room, um, more so than, than there being any true evidence for that. And then often it's combined with an antihistamine as well. So that's not uncommon. And you could choose really any of your choice. But the most common for prevention would be superheptidine. But in the emergency room setting, you might see either diphenhydramine or, or hydroxazine used. Those are, those are both pretty common choices. And then many like to try prochlorperazine in the emergency as well as a way to break a more severe acute headache. And then that's also a good place for a triptan trial, um, particularly for patients who haven't tried it. For triptans, though, they're going to be... Everything that we were talking about for acute therapy will be more effective the sooner it's tried. So you don't want to wait too long on those. And then for triptans, sometimes you do get better effect from a nasal, you know, intranasal use versus oral. So that too might be appropriate in, in an emergency room setting. And can I ask about metoclopramide? I feel like that's often used in a migraine bundle, or at least when I, uh, was part of my training. And part of the teaching I remember was that that wasn't just to treat the nausea or for the anti-emetic fat, but actually did have some value in kind of treating the migraine. Is that, is that accurate or is that ED hogwash? No, I, I think there's some truth to that. There, the um, So the dopaminergic pathway does seem to help as well for migraine, but you know, it's not it's not something you would use early into a migraine. I, I think this is something we really reserve when the migraines continued for some time. And then often, whether it's prochloperazine or metoclopramide, you're often going to make the child a little more sleepy after two. And sleep is going to be really on your side here. So when you combine an antihistamine with something like prochloperazine, the child's often going to sleep after that. And it might be more the effect of sleep than anything else that is helping break the headache. Do we have any other, in my outpatient setting, and I have this kid who 
Um, Ari has um, triptans at home, and they've they've done it done a trial. What other options do I have, or should I if I I'm have, if I'm having trouble breaking it, should I just send them to the emergency department to get some sort of a headache cocktail? So I, I like to well actually if I if it's a known headache patient, I've seen them in the office. I actually do like to give them at least three things that they can do at home to break the headache. So. Um, and then now let's say I've not seen them yet and somebody has a pretty refractory migraine and I haven't had time to counsel them on what to use. You can try a few things at home. So you can try, you can still try an antihistamine at home. Um, even if they have no prescription, um, you could, you could try magnesium too. So magnesium oxide is usually my choice, but, um, usually about 200 to 400 milligrams for an adult size person. Um, so for a child, you'd have to scale that down based on size. And certainly you can try an NSAID. So uh, you can at least try those few things. So I'll often try something like if, if somebody's at home and they're calling me with severe migraine, I might recommend ibuprofen, diphenhydramine, and magnesium. That might be an approach that we could try. Or And then I might call in a script for, I might even call in a script for procloperazine and, and a triptan as well. And I will do everything I can to try to manage this at home. If, if I'm fairly confident it's migraine and there's not some other, if this is a patient that's known to me and I'm confident it's migraine, I really try to manage it at home if I can. Because in truth, when you have photophobia, phonophobia, and you're nauseous, the last thing you want to do is be in an emergency room where the, light, it's, the lights are really bright, there's a ton of noise, and people keep poking and prodding you. You're so much better at home where you can hopefully fall asleep. You know, so try to get the patient to hydrate and to try to give them at least three or four things that they could do. And for every patient who has a pretty significant headache, I'd like to give them at least three or four things at home that they can do to avoid ever having to use an emergency room. Can I follow up on that? You mentioned magnesium as an abortive therapy, and I think of magnesium as kind of like a smooth muscle um, relaxer. Is that how that works? Or is there like a clear pharmacology of why an anti-inflammatory like NSAID and a muscle uh, or vessel relaxer like magnesium help with migraines or headaches? It might, you know, the effect of magnesium is, I think it's still somewhat speculative, but the, it might, it probably has more to do with the fact that it is stabilizing the neurons themselves. At, uh, so it's, it's, it's preventing abnormal firing of neurons. Um, so it's like, it's stabilizing things electrically because it has some role in seizures as well. So magnesium can be helpful for as like uh, an adjunct for for preventing seizures. And many of the treatments we use in migraine are also anti-seizure meds. And so they, you know, I think it relates to the fact that many people have channelopathies as a basis for their migraines. And so, so magnesium helps for a lot of those patients with channelopathies. Very cool. Thank you. So maybe let's jump now from talking about this abortive treatment to what we're going to do to try to prevent these migraines and other forms of headaches from occurring in the first place. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts on things that we can do that involve medication as well as things that are outside of just prescribing something. And then also kind of your thoughts on when we should start in the primary care versus referring to neurology. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I So... I think the first thing is really determining if somebody requires something preventative. And the simplest way to determine that is whether these headaches are actually impacting the child's life. I think there's no, I can't say that there's like a set number of headaches per week or a set severity that that relates to because each child's a little bit different. But, you know, if they're missing school, if they're missing activities, if this is affecting them socially, that's when we really have to think about using something preventative. For most kids, that's usually somewhere in the range of about three headaches a week or more. But 
you know, if they're pretty severe, you could even consider it weekly as well. So for, you know, the first step though, when you talk about prevention is actually starting with lifestyle. You know, I, th I think we always have to remember to collect a headache diary to try to get some baseline data on that, try to look at the triggers, really help the family identify what sorts of triggers might exist, whether it be sleep deprivation, skipping meals, eating certain foods that are bringing out headaches, uh, whether that be monosodium glutamate, red dye 40, <laughs> nitrates, like there, there are a whole host of things that they might want to skip. Of course, red wine is probably not on that list for the kids, but <laughs> um, ch maybe chocolate, uh, certain kinds of aged cheeses might be might still be there. So um, you, you really do want to uh, instruct them on, on potential food triggers and look at all the important factors, stress and sleep and hydration and missing meals. So that's always the first place to start. And then if you look at what else we could do beyond that, if I, let's say this child is going to sleep eight o'clock every night, never skips a meal, doing all the right stuff. I, I think there is still a role for stress reduction, you know, in, in pretty much everyone. Because if you look at the if you look at the improvement that we see with cognitive behavioral therapy, it's at least as good as what you observe with medications, with preventive prescription medications. The challenge with cognitive behavioral therapy is finding somebody to administer it. But one could argue that that could be a, an appropriate first-line therapy for all patients. And here's the, here's the tricky part, though, when it comes to prevention and, and, and prescription meds, is that actually none of the prescription meds we use have been shown to be particularly effective in pediatric migraine. And so there, there've been a lot, there's been a lot of work on this trying to really identify what are the effective treatment options that we have. The big conclusion is that none of them are really substantially effective. And one of the reasons for that is that is the issue of the placebo effect, because in the placebo arm of every trial, the rate of improvement is quite high. So the placebo arm, you could see rates of improvement as high as 60%, depending on the trial. But the other issue too is that the a lot of the, what we use for prevention is still is very limited in its efficacy. So um, some of the best evidence exists for topiramate as a, uh, and that's a, that was originally developed as an anti-seizure medication. And it has some glutamate properties. It acts on AMPA receptors. That might be partly why it helps for migraines. Um, so topiramate has a little bit better evidence than most. And um, there's also some role for, for um, beta blockers as well. But for the most part, the main thing to counsel families on is that prescription meds are really limited in, in their efficacy. Now, previously you sort of talked about CGRP and how its mechanisms into some migraines. One question I have is we're, we're already seeing some of these medications in the adult world, um, looking at monoclonal antibody, looking at either the receptor or the agonist. Um, do we see something like this possibly coming in the future down, down the pipeline with pediatrics? And do you, are, are you hopeful that these might be really, uh, these might be uh, efficacious in this population? I think they'll definitely be efficacious in kids. And I do think that the studies will will demonstrate that in time. They're not FDA approved. None of the CGRP inhibitors are FDA approved for under 18. And I know that we like to stick with generics, but unfortunately, these are all MAB medications <laughs> and they have very long, cumbersome names. And so I apologize, but I won't name the three that are currently FDA approved because of the difficulty of their names. However, these these are all monoclonal antibodies. These are all given through injection. That would be an issue for, for many kids, um, but they're only once a month to once every three months. And at what I could tell you for the patients over 18 is that these medications are really well tolerated. For those who can tolerate the injectable, they're very to well tolerated and they don't have 
the kind of cognitive side effects that you could see with some of the other preventive treatments available. And the efficacy seems to be quite good as well. There's been longstanding evidence that calcitonin-related peptide is really important in migraine development, as well as substance P. And we recognize that CGRP was important in migraine, uh, I think it was around 1983, the first papers that really demonstrated its role in migraine. So this is a really longstanding area of awareness. It just took a long time to figure out how to develop a medication that would block it effectively. And the, a lot of the issue that led that resulted in, in such a long development for these treatments was that a lot of the earlier trials were so short-acting, they just were not going to be useful because they couldn't find something that could inhibit the CGRP and, and last long enough to be useful. Um, and so that's where the idea of monoclonal antibodies kind of came into play. So despite the fact that it took 30 years to get an active treatment, that we knew about this pathway, it took 30 years to find it. And then all of a sudden, three different meds became FDA approved within six months of each other. I mean, it's kind of amazing <laughs> that they all just boom, boom, boom. They all just lined up. And so I, you know, I, I would say that it is a really important treatment avenue to consider in patients over 18 right now. It's really hard to, to get insurance approval, though, under 18. But I will use them off-label in kids who are 15 and above in that age range if, if I've tried other treatments. I wouldn't do this as a first line. And we have a similar issue too with Botox. So Botox is FDA approved 18 and over for patients who have chronic migraine, meaning 15 days a month of migraine or more, but it's not FDA approved under 18. And that that is also really truly limited to age. It's very hard to get insurance approval under 18 for Botox. Um, so those are worth noting. I mean, those are really different pathways. They both they work a little differently, but Botox is actually working not has nothing to do with the muscle effect of Botox. So you are weakening the facial muscles, and it's given primarily in, in multiple injection sites in the forehead, but it really is more of an afferent effect, or it seems, that the Botox is acting on. Um, so it's really completely separate from the effect on muscle. So one thing that uh, I really get out of these episodes is trying to uh, make myself look good when I refer to someone smarter than me who's a subspecialist. And so in setting up a patient for success, are there certain things that I should be doing to have them ready for a neurologist to take over? And can you walk through what is that first neurologist visit like? And what are some things that might be best done in a subspecialty clinic as opposed to primary care office? Sure. I mean, first to know, I never fault anyone for trying, right? So um, I don't want a pediatrician or anybody referring to ever feel like I'm going to walk in that room and be like, who's the idiot who did such and such? Those words never leave my mouth because I just, if any, any attempt, any attempt to help the patient improve, I love it. So I'll never, I'll never fault that. So I don't want anybody to ever feel worried that they shouldn't have tried this or that. Um, I don't want you to feel paralyzed in, into non-treatment, but the, Already the simplest, relieved. <laughs> good. <laughs> the, uh, you know, I think the simplest thing is, though is to really have started with some of the counseling, right? So I, you know, I want to make sure, um, first I, I think as a pediatrician, it's really important to reassure the family that the exam looks good, to go through the neurological exam, reassure them that the exam looks good, go through that history. And if you can reassure them that this really is behaving like migraine, say, then that that alone, and, and that you have no reason to suspect a brain tumor or anything worrisome, that alone helps that family enter in a much calmer state when we begin that visit. The other thing too is counseling on the really simple stuff uh, should never be overlooked. So, you know, making sure we talk about sleep, diet, hydration, and stress reduction. Like those things are also really critically important. Many of the patients I see, like for example, um, 
you know, it's not uncommon that I see adolescents who have a history of chronic abdominal pain and chronic headache. And we could be pretty sure that those two things are interrelated or, or perhaps have really the part different manifestations of anxiety, for example. And so I think it's really important for the pediatrician to spend that time to, to counsel on things like stress reduction or to really get into what else is going on in your life that might relate to these to these symptoms. So that's that's probably the key thing. As to choosing treatment A or B, I you know, I know so a lot of pediatricians do have their go to treatment for patients. And I can't say that there's I can never advocate for a single treatment for any one patient. But in general terms, I would say that there are a few things that are going to be really safe and easy to use in the office before they get to the neurologist. So one would be magnesium, which is a, a you know, and I, again, I usually use magnesium oxide, but the form is not as critical, but I use magnesium oxide because it seems to be a little easier on the stomach and cause a little less diarrhea. But that's something that I think is a, a fairly safe thing to reach for. You could also reach for riboflavin or vitamin B2, coenzyme Q10. These are going to be really safe and, and, and easy things to administer. Efficacy is going to be more the issue there. Like you're, you're not going to, you're going to get a lot of, it's hit or miss, So, you're, but you're going to get a lot of misses here, but it's still worth trying. There's no harm in it. I think in younger kids, especially kids who have trouble sleeping or have trouble with trouble with allergies, I, I think ciproheptadine is a really easy thing as well for the pediatrician to reach for because it's, you know, it's been used in pediatric allergy for decades. It's, it used to be the go-to for allergy before we had all these newer treatments. Um, and particularly in kids who have either abdominal migraine features or who aren't sleeping well, I think you could feel really reassured about the overall safety as well. And I think when it comes to beyond that, when you're getting into an, either an older kid or somebody who needs a prescription preventative med, um, I think the issue here is really comes down to what side effect profile you think this patient can tolerate. Because I mentioned previously that when you look at the primary preventative prescription meds for migraines, so whether it be amitriptyline, topiramate, propranolol, none of those are terribly effective. It is still worth trying for individuals, though, because you do find, I think when you look at kids on the whole, they're not effective in large groups, but there are individuals who may respond. But you have to always pay attention to what side effect profile a given patient might tolerate. For example, if you have somebody who really struggles with sleep, a teenage patient who just cannot sleep at all at night, perhaps amitriptyline is the way to go. You know, if you have a patient who's really struggled with obesity, maybe topiramate is not a bad choice since it causes weight loss. And and propranolol, I do consider in patients who who sometimes seem really highly anxious. I'll, I'll think about propranolol. I think propranolol is a little tricky, and some it's not uncommon that you see POTS, postural orthostat orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, with migraine or chronic migraine. Um, so that's always an interesting decision on propranolol in those patients because. You would think it would bottom out their pressure, but in truth, it often helps their POTS and helps their migraine. Yeah. So we, we always have to think about how the how the side effect profile fits in. One, one question about some of these medications that you're bringing up. Um, I just sort of, if I'm trying to do this as primary care, like the dosing, like for amitriptyline, am I dosing it like depression dosing with comes of propanolol? Am I, 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 I know it's, we probably do have some weight base in there, but just how, how should I approach these? Do you have any rules of thumb? I would say start low and go slow with all of these. But so amitriptyline, for example, first I, I do an EKG when I when I use amitriptyline, and I will generally start it at somewhere uh, either ten or sometimes twelve point five milligrams. You know, I might start it there, and then you'll rev it up usually to about fifty. So a common strategy is either to go in terms of the frequency of the increases every three five day kind of range. I often do like every three days. So you might go like 10, 20, 
30, 40, 50, depending on tolerance. But if the patient's tired, lightheaded, dry mouth, anything like that, you, you have to back off and, and scale it down a little bit. Um, and so that can be done. You know, a, a pediatrician, I think, can feel comfortable starting amitriptyline. But I, I usually reserve that for a patient who has a lot of trouble with sleep. And I try to avoid it in patients who are chronically lightheaded. Um, I think, and oh, I think for topiramate, it's similar. I, I think both amitriptyline and topiramate come in 25 milligram tablets, so that makes it easy to remember. Um, but topiramate's a little bit similar. But usually, I'll start topiramate actually at 25 milligrams at night, and then go to 50 at night, and usually you start to see some effect at that at 50 at night. So in both cases, you don't topiramate. You don't have to go up to seizure doses for topiramate, and you don't have to go to antidepressant doses for amitriptyline. And propanolol is usually dosed multiple times a day. Is that correct? Yeah. So for propranolol, you know, it's often a three time a day med. I, I often do start with propranolol though, because it comes in small 10 milligram size pills. But I, I think atenolol is also a good consideration because you can actually do a little better with the once a day dosing on that and maybe start at 25. I don't know that a pediatrician has to necessarily do these. I think my hope is always that you could get by sometimes with the magnesium trial like you could do something like magnesium CoQ10, for example. There's also the other supplement non-prescription is Butterbur, which is a fairly common choice. Butterbur does have some potential risk for hepatotoxicity, but Butterbur can be considered as well. And the trials in pediatrics, there, there have been a few trials specifically in pediatrics uh, that were conducted in Germany, and the efficacy was, was quite good and the tolerance was quite good. Branching off of that, is there any role for things like acupuncture or stimulation devices or TENS? Yeah. So um, I think this is similar. CBT is always my preference of, of all the non-medication approaches, but um, acupuncture as well has pretty good evidence for efficacy in migraine. You know, I don't think that the mechanism relates to qi myself, but I do think actually in some sense, I think it's not so dissimilar from some of the trigeminal stimulation devices that exist. I, th I have to wonder if it relates more to the like sensory feedback that might occur through acupuncture. I don't mean to insult anybody who follows qi as a primary basis of acupuncture. I just think it's probably its effect might be more neurological than anything else. And similarly, there are these electrical stimulation devices, which they're both vagus nerve stimulation devices and trigeminal nerve stimulation devices, which are also used as migraine preventatives. The problem with both is they're expensive. And there's not really a return policy on those. So you have to buy this device. You pay about $500. You try it. If it doesn't work, you're kind of out $500. And, and so I always feel bad recommending that to patients because I, I don't want them to lose money on something that's not helpful for them. So it's not usually my first choice. Over the counter, there's this uh, thing. I've, I've had a patient come up to me. It's called Cephaly, which is a superorbital nerve stimulator. Have you ever seen this or used this or tried this in Pete's patients? Yeah, so it looks like something maybe a Romulan princess would wear. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't mean to insult the company, but it, it's sort of like a, it's like a tiara on your forehead, um, and it's a little electric device that you place over your forehead, and it, it really is administering trigeminal stimulation. There is evidence that trigeminal stimulation helps, and the device is used both for acute as well as acute headache as well as prevention. And I have tried it in patients, but I'm, I'm usually considering this more as like a fourth or fifth line approach. I, I think this has been great. I mean, we, we've gotten to review kind of the diagnosis, the differentials, how to work this up, questions asked, and now all these different treatments. And even though there's not great evidence for some of the preventative therapies in pediatrics, it sounds like even the placebo effect can get you 60% sometimes. So I will definitely at least feel more comfortable with 
CoQ10 and, and magnesium and uh, I'll have to look more into butter burr. I, that's not something I knew about before the show, but I'll I'll call the butter burr hotline and, and try to ask some questions and <laughs> learn about it. Um, it's a butterball hotline joke. Uh, but to summarize, can you kind of uh, go through what are some of what are some of your take home points that uh, you really think, John, that our listeners should walk away with um, in approaching headaches and treating headaches uh, in a pediatric population? Well, I think the most important thing is really not to overlook the importance of the lifestyle piece. And I think it's it's hard for us in the office to sometimes address sleep and anxiety. But if we could solve sleep and anxiety and also get kids more physically active, if we could do those things, we're going to be able to solve most migraines without without medication. It's just that we can't, I, I wish we could just solve them as easily as I stated it. And that's, that's probably the most important thing to keep in mind. I, I also, I'd like to reassure kids too, though, that I think one of the fears parents have is that particularly for young kids, sometimes parents in the back of their mind, they're worried that if their seven-year-old has severe migraines, that my goodness, like what is this going to be like when they're 20 or, or 30? Because if they're so bad now, how are they going to be later in life? And I like to reassure people that migraines will change over your life cycle. They're not going to remain this severe, especially the patients with chronic daily headaches. Chronic daily headaches are, and that's when we we're talking about patients with more than 15 headaches per month, Chronic daily headaches occur in as many as um, 1% of all eighth graders. And so the families and the kids themselves wonder, will this ever get better? And I, I always like to spend that time to reassure them that, yes, this will get better. You're not going to be in, in a retirement home one day with chronic daily headaches still. This always gets better. It does get better over your life cycle. It's not a, it's not a static thing. It's a very dynamic thing. And the patients have to, part of it is just things get better at maturity, but part of it is the patients get better at understanding their symptoms, understanding their triggers. And so I think as kids get older, it's all about empowerment. It's about giving, it's like giving the kids the keys to the car and giving them the tools that they need to control their migraines. And if we can help empower each kid to control this, then that's it. I mean, you've done your job and it's a great, it's a great thing from there. Um, before we go, is there anything you'd like to plug? I'd, I'd say this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Plug ever. There we go. <laughs> I think everybody should be listening to Cribsiders. Um, it's no, it's, it's a great learning tool. I love it. I think, you know, for a busy, a busy professional, especially if you have a long commute or you just have to mow the lawn or something, what better way to take advantage of that time than to listen to a podcast and, and learn about your field a little bit more. Definitely. Yeah, we're definitely made for the long commute. <laughs> yeah. That's our demographic. Um, well, this has been wonderful. Uh, we appreciate your support and we appreciate uh, being able to use the platform to use your teaching and expertise to kind of share your knowledge uh, and help pediatric trainees um, and attendings learn more about core common pediatric topics. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your expertise. We're really grateful to, to have you on. Thanks. My pleasure. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. 
We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. To do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player, or feel free to send us an email at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Sydney Engel, and our executive producer, Dr. Clara Mao, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Sydney Houseman Engel. And this has been Chris the Chumanchu. Thank you. Good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.